I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Hosea, to the 11th chapter. It's found in the Old Testament. That's about the only hint I can give you. If you can't find it, it will also be on the screen. Four verses from this Old Testament prophet taken from the 11th chapter. This is what God said to the prophet. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arm, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with the cords of human kindness and with ties of love. To them, I was like the one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. Bob Benson wrote Laughter in the Walls, a wonderful little book. And in it he says something that goes like this. I pass a lot of houses on my way home, some pretty, some expensive, some inviting. But my heart always skips a beat when I turn down the road and see my house nestled against the hill. I guess I am especially proud of the house and the way it looks because I drew up the plans myself. It started out large enough for us. I even had a study. Two teenage boys now reside in there. And it had a guest room. My girls and nine dolls are permanent guests. I had a small room Peg had hoped would be her sewing room. Two boys swing on the Dutch store, have claimed it as their own. It really doesn't look right now as if I'm all that much of an architect, but it will get larger again. You see, one by one, they will go away to work, to college, to service, to their own houses, and then there will be room, a guest room, a study, a sewing room, just for the two of us. But it won't be empty. Every corner, every room, every nick in the coffee table will be crowded with memories. Memories of picnics and parties and Christmases, bedside vigils, summers, fires, winters, going barefoot, leaving for vacation. Conversations, black eyes, graduations, first dates, ball games, arguments, washing dishes, bicycles, dogs, boat rides, getting home from vacation. Meals, rabbits, and a thousand other things that fill the lives of those who would raise five. And Peg and I will sit quietly by the fire and we will listen to the laughter of the walls. Today is Father's Day. And like Mother's Day, it brings with it a lot of issues and emotions and memories. My father is here this morning. This is his 70th Father's Day as a father. 
and I'm honored to call him my father. I'm honored that he wants to be here to listen to me this morning. He was with us a few weeks ago. He forgot his hearing aids. So this morning, he has them. So he will actually hear me this morning. I love you, Dad. Thank you. Family memories can be exciting. They can be painful. And then they can even be exciting and painful at the same time. So about a month ago, we started a series entitled, My Heart, Christ's Home. We talked about Jesus Christ coming into our heart, taking up residence, and renovating our life. If you haven't picked up a copy of that little booklet on the Welcome Center, please do so. And hopefully, most of you have already read it. How many of you remember what Robert Munger said about the nursery? Well, that's good, because he doesn't mention the nursery in the entire book. He doesn't include this in his litany of rooms that Jesus visits. But in my estimation, it is a room that is a part of all of our lives. And so we're going to talk about it for a few moments this morning. You see, the nursery is an incredible place, a place of incredible responsibility and deep nurture and development. It represents where we were first loved and where we learned to love. It is where parents learn to love their children and where children learn they are loved unconditionally. Going through the house, God reminds us he wants ownership of every single room, including this one. Even in the best of families, being a parent is seldom a Hallmark card or Hallmark movie experience. The social research says, quote, being a parent does not lead to greater happiness. It is meaningful, it is wonderful, but it is never easy. The truth is, marital satisfaction actually decreases when a couple starts having children. In a classic study, parents were asked to rank 19 common household activities. Caring for children didn't come in first. It didn't come in second. In fact, it came in 16th of 19. It came in after talking on the phone, after food preparation, after watching TV, after exercising, and after house cleaning. Marilyn and I, like most potential parents, romanticized and idealized what it might be like to have parents, to be parents. And then we had children. Forty years ago, we brought our firstborn home from the hospital. We put him in a car seat. His body so tiny that we had to prop him up with a blanket. I drove home slowly and carefully down side streets with my hazard lights blinking. <laughs> Just kidding. But for the first time, I realized I was responsible for this human being in the back seat. I pictured rocking him, watching him sleep, feeding him, 
holding his hand, teaching him so that he would constantly say, I love you, daddy. Thank you for being my daddy. Didn't quite turn out that way. Apparently, I'm not a great teacher. But I also didn't realize how selfish I was until I became a parent. I can remember being absolutely desperate for sleep. So desperate that when he cried, I can remember pretending that I was asleep so that Marilyn would have to get up and diagnose the problem. I wasn't at all like Jesus. I remember Marilyn saying, you have no idea what it is like to have someone to constantly clean up after, constantly feed, and be at their beckoned call day and night. And now, in addition to you, I have to take care of this baby. (laughs) It's exhausting. Kids grow up. They go off to school. They learn to drive. They go on to college, perhaps. They move out. But the truth is, you never stop being a parent. Even when they're 40 years old. You're always their dad. You're always their mom. And truth is, most of it wouldn't change any of it for anything. Being a parent and now being a grandparent has had a significant impact on my life and I'm sure on yours as well. John Ortberg said he once Googled the most disappointing parent in the entire world. Now, either John has way too much time on his hand or he was looking for a sermon illustration. But he said a guy in Great Britain popped up. He had written a letter to his children that went viral, thousands and thousands of hits. Apparently, it's not all that unusual for parents to be disappointed in their children. But listen to just a bit of it. Dear kids, It is obvious that none of you has the faintest notion of the bitter disappointment each of you has dissed out to us. We are constantly regaled with chapter and verse of the happy, successful lives of our friends and relatives and their children who then ask us for news of our own children and grandchildren. I can tell you that I and mom have enough of being forced to live through the never-ending bad dream of our children's underachievement I want to hear no more from you until until if you feel inclined to have a success or an achievement or perhaps even a realistic plan of a possible achievement. I am bitterly, bitterly disappointed. Dad. Ouch. Relationships are hard. Truth is, relationships are often disappointing. But this dad seems to me to be disappointed in his children for purely superficial reasons. He responds in a terribly inappropriate and hurtful way. As a parent, as a person, he misses something most significant, something this morning I don't want you to miss. The Bible, from which we read a few moments ago, is the story of a parent, a good, good father who for good, good reasons 
expresses his disappointment with his children. But this father responds in a way that is way beyond our comprehension and understanding. He responds with unconditional and even sacrificial love. He offers the life of his own and only begotten son as the proof of that love for us. So we read it. First verse of this 11th chapter, when Israel was a child, I loved him. Every parent knows that feeling. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Israel, you may remember, were slaves. They were in bondage in this nation called Egypt. And God, God led them out with power. But the more they were loved, God notes, the more they seemed to walk away in the opposite direction. He writes, they, they sacrificed to the Baals. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk. Now, parents often have terms of endearment. They often have names that they give for their children. And Ephraim, Ephraim is one of those terms that God uses, a term of endearment, a term of love for his children. So he says, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. It was I who took Ephraim in my arms. But they did not realize that it was I who had healed them. They didn't acknowledge God's care. They didn't acknowledge his love. They weren't sensitive to his grace. So he says, I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them I was like one who lifts a little child up to his cheek. I was the one who bent down to feed them. God says, when I claimed my little child Israel, they were nothing special. They didn't deserve anything. In fact, they were a bunch of ragged, rebellious slaves. And then I loved them. And then everything changed. I taught them to walk. I picked them up. I held them in my arms. I hold them the way every loving parent does. They didn't even know that I was loving them. They didn't know what I was doing, but every morning there was food on their table. They had clean clothes to put on and to wear. Every night I provided them with a safe place to sleep. I provided for them and I protected them. I had a wonderful plan for their life. I thought they would all be straight A students. They would make varsity in every single sport. They would set up a successful business and then they would be able to fund my retirement. That part wasn't for you. That's in case some of my kids are listening. Just... But when they got older, all they seemed to do was think about themselves. They ran after success. They ran after money. They ran after things. They ran after their own happiness and satisfaction. And they left me alone, God says. And while that's not my personal story, it happens all too often. God comes. He comes with open arms. And people turn away and walk away. Listen to God's response. 
It's not like that gentleman in Great Britain. God says, how can I give up on you? How could I ever let you go? And so out of his unconditional love, God makes the ultimate sacrifice and he sends his only, his one son to come here to take on the form of a human being like us. To go to a cross. And Jesus says, no greater love has anyone than this but to lay down one's life for one's friends. No greater love. Paul will write in Romans 5, verse 8, and Christ demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's love. God loved us regardless of how we respond to him and his love. That's unconditional love. There is nothing you and I can do that could make God love us more. At the same time, there is nothing you and I could do that would make God love us any less. Unconditional love is the essence of good parenting. It is also the essence of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. In our world, love is too often conditional. In our world... Love is too often self-serving. You please me, I'll love you. You do me a favor, I'll do you a favor. <laughs> but if you hurt me, <laughs> watch your back, because I'll be there. That's not real love. Real love is not some warm, fuzzy feeling. It's a commitment to love and to care and to grace, no matter how you love me no matter how you treat me, no matter how you respond to my love, it is unconditional commitment. It is sacrificial commitment. It is selfless commitment. Because of God's nature, he can't stop loving us. It is also the nature of a good parent. It is also the nature of a disciple, one who follows Jesus Christ. So to paraphrase Luke 18, verse 8, when Christ comes knocking on the door of your heart, will he find the same kind of unconditional and sacrificial love with which he loves you and with which he loves me? The place in our heart where love should be most evident is in the nursery how we embrace our own children, the least of these speaks volumes about how we love one another, how we love our friends and our coworkers and our neighbors and even the stranger in our midst. Going into the nursery teaches us how to love like God has loved us in Jesus Christ. See, the disciples... They were convinced that children were nothing but a nuisance. All they wanted to do was interrupt Jesus from his important stuff. But Jesus said his disciples step aside unless you become, he said, like one of these little ones. Unless you learn to give and to receive unconditional love, you will not be able to enter into the kingdom of God. 
Wow. Children, whether they're young or whether they're old, need someone to love them unconditionally, to love them sacrificially, to love them selflessly, so that they too can learn how to love like that. And the truth is, if they don't find that kind of love in the right places, at home, with parents, with extended family, with the church, with a Christ-centered school, they'll start looking for it in all the wrong places. And there are a lot more wrong places than there are right places. When our sons were little, we used to read a book to them. Might be familiar to some of you. It's actually, truth be told, a bit on the corny side. But there's a story behind it. So both the story and the story behind it are rather deeply moving. I'd like to share it with you this morning. It's entitled, rather simply, Love You Forever. And it goes like this. A mother held her new baby and very slowly rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And while she held him, she sang, I'll love you forever. I'll love you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby you'll be. The baby grew. He grew and he grew and he grew. He grew until he was two years old. And he ran all around the house. He pulled all the books off the shelves. He pulled all the food out of the refrigerator. And he took his mother's watch and flushed it down the toilet. Sometimes his mother would say, this kid is driving me crazy. But at nighttime, when that two-year-old was quiet, she opened the door to his room, crawled across the floor, and looked up over the side of his bed. And if he was really asleep, she picked him up and rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And while she rocked him, she sang, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby you'll be. The little boy grew. He grew and he grew and he grew. He grew until he was nine years old. And he never wanted to come in for dinner. He never wanted to take a bath. And when grandma visited, he always said bad words. Sometimes his mother wanted to sell him to the zoo. But at nighttime, when he was asleep, the mother quietly opened the door to his room, crawled across the floor, and looked up over the side of the bed. If he was really asleep, she picked up that nine-year-old boy and rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And while she rocked him, she sang, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby you'll be. The boy grew. He grew and he grew and he grew. He grew until he was a teenager. He had strange friends and he wore strange clothes and he listened to strange music. Sometimes the mother felt like she was in the zoo. But at nighttime, when that teenager was asleep, the mother opened the door to his room, crawled across the floor, and looked up over the side of the bed. If he was really asleep, she picked up that great big boy and rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And while she rocked him, she sang, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby, you'll be. That teenager grew. He grew and he grew and he grew. He grew until he was a grown-up man. 
he left home and he got a house across town. Well, that mother, she got older. She got older and older and older. One day she called up her son and said, you better come and see me because I'm very old and sick. So her son came to see her. When he came in the door, she tried to sing the song. She sang, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. But she couldn't finish it. She was too old and too sick. So the son went to his mother. He picked her up and he rocked her back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And he sang this song. I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my mommy, you will be. When the son came home that night, he stood for a long time at the top of the stairs. And then he went into the room where his new baby daughter was sleeping. He picked her up into his arms and very slowly rocked her back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And while he rocked her, he sang, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby, you'll be. Generations come and go. People are born and people die. But the song, the song like the father's unconditional love goes on and on and on and it starts in the nursery. The author who wrote this book is Robert Munch. His life was not the hallmark card kind. He was diagnosed with bipolar disorder as a child. As a fifth grader, he was depressed and suicidal. As a teen, he was diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder. In the process of medicating himself, he became an alcoholic and joined AA. He studied for seven years to become a Jesuit priest, but remained filled with doubts and uncertainty and darkness and never did become a priest. Instead, he got married. He and his wife had a baby. The baby was stillborn. They got pregnant again. This baby, too, was born still. They eventually were able to adopt three children. But Robert Munch, he never got to hold his baby in his arms. But he loved children. He loved his children. And he wrote children's books. And the one I shared this morning has sold over 30 million copies. He said about the book, I'm going to write a story better than life. And in this story, love will be stronger than death. That's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus wrote a story about a better life. He modeled a love that conquered death. Jesus Christ's is the best story ever written, designed to be retold.
in the nursery room of our heart. Christ is looking for evidence of unconditional, self-sacrificing, selfless love. A love that reflects the Father's and Christ's unconditional, self-sacrificing, selfless love. This kind of love includes, but is not limited to some of these things, to your prayers. The best way for a parent to love their children is to stay close to Jesus. The best way to stay close to Jesus is to spend time with Jesus daily in prayer. The best way to become better parents and better disciples of Jesus is to ask God for his assistance day by day. The best way for a parent to love their children is to teach them to pray, to be able to spend time with the source, the only source of unconditional, sacrificial, selfless love. This is best done by praying with them while they listen. It is best done by praying with them while they pray and you listen. Sadly, most parents don't pray much. Parents seldom pray for their children. And I fear they pray even less with their children. Most parents I've come across will tell you that they're just too busy taking care of their children to pray for their children. But the truth is, Prayer is not a parent's last resort. It is their first priority. Second, your time. The best thing you can offer to your children and to others is yourself. Not your money, not your wisdom, not, but your time, your incarnational presence to be there. A little quality time is never a substitute for quantity time. Third, your encouragement, that is your affirmation. Parents should be their children's biggest fan and their supporter. Parents are the primary influencer in their children's life, in their faith life as well. The parent of the opposite sex of the child is the one who impacts the child's self-esteem the most. The parent of the same sex as the child is the one who impacts their self-identity the most. And children need both. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5 reminds us that not only those of us who are parents, but all of us who are disciples of Jesus need to encourage one another to build one another up and support each other. Fourth, you're evangelizing. You see, parents are to aim their children in the right direction. The psalmist in Psalm 127 says that children are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. He's implying that our children need to be intentionally pointed toward Jesus. Parents, remembering our children, sit on that third chair. So sitting on the second chair, we need to do all and everything we can for those children sitting next to us. Children are led by our walk by our talk, by our presence. Disciples are to make more disciples. We're to talk our walk and then to walk our talk. We're to point our children and others to Jesus because he's the one, the only one who exemplifies unconditional, self-sacrificing, selfless love. And then finally, you're modeling 
parents, all believers, need to consciously, constantly, and consistently walk the Christian life. Our children in the world are constantly watching us. They don't miss anything. So we need to walk our walk. Children need someone they can look up to, someone they can trust, someone they can depend on who will always love them regardless of what they do or don't do. And our children, young believers, need someone to teach them how to love unconditionally. Dr. Albert Schweitzer once said, example is not the best way of teaching. It's the only way, end quote. Even if you don't see immediate results, press on. You are making an impact. So this is your heart. You can do this whether you have children at home, whether you have had children at home, whether you hope someday to have children in your house, or if you just remember what it was like to be a child at home. If you are willing to let Jesus come in and take control of your heart's nursery. Jesus is looking in the nursery for a heart that offers unconditional love, sacrificial love, and selfless love. And the question is, if he looks, will he find it? This song comes from Jesus. He sings it regularly to us. I'll love you forever. I'll love you for always. I'm the Holy One. I'll write a story in your life where love is stronger than death. And he did. We call this story the gospel. And you can read it at the cross.